Well, greetings, church. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter 4 will be our text this evening as we come again once again on this Lord's Day, this evening service to worship the one true and living God. And as we give attention to the reading of Holy Scripture, we are once more reminded that this is the Word of the living God. And I will read verses 1 through 6. You can follow along with me as I read aloud. And this is God's Word. It reads as follows. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And may God add blessing to the reading of His Word, if you would join me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a joy and privilege it is to gather on the Lord's Day evening, the bookend of this Lord's Day that you have given to us for rest and Christian fellowship and worship. And we pray that you would strengthen us according to your word, that you would cause our faith to grow, the resolve of our faith to be strengthened. And I pray this evening that you would strengthen this church, the church that you have called me to serve this evening in this sermon. I pray that you would by the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God would cause us all to see what is written here in this text, that we would not only see it, but make application to us individually and to this church corporately. And may you strengthen this church and use this church continuously in this region and beyond for your glory now, we ask in Christ's name, amen. As we consider the importance of the local church, we are reminded of the necessity of the local church. God has never saved anyone for the purpose of sending them out as a lone ranger to just wander about in the faith. No, and it is God's intention, it is His plan, it is His will for us to be a part of a local, tangible, visible New Testament church for the glory of God. As Paul is writing this very letter, he's in prison, and he's writing this letter to the church in the city of Ephesus, and it would have been a a letter that would have circulated in various other churches in that specific region. Ephesus was located on the coastal region of modern-day Turkey, and it had a, a, a really an intersection of main roadways and was considered to be the gateway to Asia. The church at Ephesus has been described in several different ways throughout history. As you consider this very church in a very strategic city, we are mindful that according to history, that Ephesus was considered to be the vanity fair of the ancient world. All sorts of sin and perversion was there in this city, and this city was made up of all sorts of commerce and trade, athletics. The city of Ephesus was the home to a great theater that was capable of seating upwards of 25,000 people for athletic competitions. But the city was also famous for its worship, the home of the Temple of Artemis. This massive temple was one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. And in this temple, they would have engaged in all sorts of idolatry and perversion and temple prostitution. And so, needless to say, this city was ripe for gospel preaching. And within this specific city, there would be raised up by God a church. And yet one philosopher would say no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. So the purpose, the overall goal of this letter was to encourage the church and to and to really drive home the central theme of the church's position in Christ. 
And so as we think about our position in Christ, that's one of the things that causes us to have unity. And as we're going to parachute down, if you will, into this text this evening, in chapter number four, we see the main emphasis of this section is unity, that we are to be a unified body. And specifically, this local church should be a unified church. But yet we're living in a day of division, are we not? We see it in all sorts of various spheres and layers within our culture. We see the sphere of politics dividing individuals and dividing families and friendships. It is a constant battle. We see it in the realm of sports. Is it Texas or is it Texas A&M? Is it Texas Tech? Is, Is that even in the conversation at all? And so I I speak that language. I know what it's like to have individuals who who want to clash over these issues, specifically college football, Georgia or Alabama. And yes, Georgia Tech's not even in the equation of consideration. And then Virgil Walker came to work for G3 and pulls up with his car to the very front of our building with OU on the front of his license plate. And so we have these conversations. And people are divided over these issues. In the business world, we see division, competition, corruption, greed, slander, and all sorts of ungodliness put on display in the realm or sphere of corporate America. And while we can see all sorts of division and we can see all sorts of discord in various ways outside in the broader culture, what we are mindful of is that the church is called to unity. The church is God's special place on planet earth. The church is a place where we get a little slice of heaven on earth. Relationships that are meaningful and deep and strong and have a genuine purpose. The church is the family of faith. The church is the family of God. The church is the called out assembly, the bride of Christ, and we are called to be one. Division and disunity may be common in various different spheres within the culture, but it should never be considered common within the church of the living God. We look in this passage this evening before us, Ephesians 4, and verses 1 through 3, we see the duty of maintaining unity. Followed up with verses 4, 5, and 6, providing us the doctrinal foundation, if you will, of unity itself. The duty of maintaining unity is found here in these opening verses of chapter number 4. We see here in this text, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I don't know if you're like me, but when I was growing up as a teenager, my dad would have that talk with me every now and then. Son, you need to recognize that that you are representing our family name when you go out in the community. So if you do something that's dishonoring to, to yourself, you're not only dishonoring yourself, you're dishonoring your family name. I'm sure you've had that talk with your children or perhaps your father or grandfather or grandmother had that talk with you at some level or another. But we need to be mindful of the reality that we should walk in a manner, our our lifestyle should, should exemplify the fact that we have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ, that we have been called out of the world into the church of the living God, adopted as sons and daughters of God. We are to walk in a worthy manner, a suitable fashion. That's the idea here. And so William Hendrickson observes in his commentary, he says, quote, it is as if Paul were saying, if you are believers and wish to be known as such, live as believers, end quote. And so that must be what the world sees of countryside Bible church, is that your testimony needs to be that of unity, not division, of harmony, not divide. It should be that within the the geographic landscape around this church. But notice, if you will, in verse number two, we see it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. 
we see the that humility is necessary for maintaining unity. We are called to maintain unity. And in order to maintain unity, we have to be humble individuals, which means that the church holds the church accountable, which means that if someone is sinning within the church, that that individual is to be confronted by someone within the church, not, not just the elders of the church, but the body confronts the body. And so it is that we must be humble, not haughty, not prideful. We must, be, we must be people who are of modest faith. That's the idea that's communicated here, lowliness of mind. And so we must be people who are approachable, not people who are prideful, arrogant, and haughty, having an elevated opinion of ourselves. No, all throughout the Scriptures, we see the Scriptures are pointing us away from pride. In fact, you see this in the Psalms, in Psalm 31, 23. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. In Proverbs eight thirteen, we hear these words. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. So there it is. God hates pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So we need to be individuals who are humble. We need to have humility, and that's the way that we maintain unity within the body of Christ is that we have this humility within ourselves. But we also see to maintain unity, there's another word that's mentioned, and that's gentleness. We need to be gentle. This idea is is the idea of meekness, the quality of not being overly impressed with yourself. That's the idea that's being communicated here. And so oftentimes people think that to be meek means to be weak. That's not so. In fact, if you consider what Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus would call us to be meek. So being meek does not mean that you are weak. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, listen to these words, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, the apostle Paul is directing the churches that he was ministering to in the, in the New Testament. We see that the apostle Paul is driving these local churches in the direction of meekness, Not pride, not arrogance, but meekness. But also there's another word that's mentioned, and it's the word patience. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, if you'll give your attention there to your copy of God's Word, it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. With patience. You see, we're to be patient with one another. We're to literally be long-tempered. That's the idea of this specific Greek word. To be long-tempered. To not be someone who's, who's quickly angered. And if you look throughout the Scriptures, you see worthy examples of this. You see this with Noah. You see this with Moses. You see this with James, who is an example of someone who suffered with patience. And yet, the church of Jesus Christ needs to be a patient church. Patient with one another, patient with leaders, patient with teachers, patient with all sorts of various different relationships within the context of the local church. It must be this way. But then you'll also note the word love at the end of verse number two, showing tolerance for one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. This word love, agape, that's the idea that's, that's communicated here, this type of continuous generosity towards one another, showing genuine love for one another. Do you ever feel like in certain relationships that people just tolerate you? Or maybe you just tolerate other individuals within the church, but there's not really a genuine depth of love to that relationship. 
You see, that's a common thing within the church. We park our cars in the parking lot. We say hello. There's a little handshake in the hallway if we happen to pass one another. We come in and we sit in our typical spaces each service, and we might say hello, might not say hello, but we can just tolerate the individuals that sit around us in our little sphere, but we're not really showing genuine love to one another. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? You see, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, it says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, being of the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what Paul said to the church at Philippi consistently being brought together in this unified bond in the same love, showing real love for one another. It's, it's not enough to just say, well, I, I just tolerate the rest of my church members. I just, I just kind of like them. Or, as some might say, I really don't like them at all, but we're just kind of in this thing together. They they chose to be a member here, and so did I, and so we're just kind of in this thing. No, the, the Scriptures teach that we are to be rigorously committed to loving one another. Loving one another. But notice, if you will, if you go to verse number 3, this idea of maintenance is brought to the surface because he says in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To be diligent means to be eager. To be eager. You should be eager to love, eager to be humble, eager to be patient, and eager to preserve the unity to preserve the unity. The word preserve here means to keep something in an active sense continuing to play its way out or to to continue on in an activity or a state or a condition of ongoing action. That's the idea that's being communicated here. And so it's sometimes translated maintain. And what happens when you don't maintain your automobile? You find yourself on the side of the road. What, What happens when you don't maintain your HVAC system in the, in the summer months here in Texas. Well, it doesn't work out too well for you. I can remember once I, I forgot to change the filter in my HVAC system in the attic, and I came in one day, and my wife said, the, AC, the AC's not working. I, I can't figure out what's going on. And, and so we're, we're trying to figure it out. And then there was this random leak that was there coming down the side of the wall in our living room. And we couldn't figure it out. I thought maybe it was coming from the the children's bathroom upstairs. And we looked under the sink and no, there's no there's no pipe that's leaking. There's nothing. And the more we searched, and then it suddenly hit me. There's something above the the bathroom, and there's the HVAC HVAC unit that's actually up there in the attic space. So I pulled down the the staircase. I walked up the stairs. I went up into the attic, and sure enough. There's all this water that's overflowing and going down through the the ceiling and down into the wall. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars later to have the sheetrock repaired, my wife reminded me in a gentle fashion that it would be easier for us and far cheaper for us to just maintain the filter. Well, when we think about maintenance, sometimes it's not fun to maintain things. Sometimes it's not fun to rotate tires. It's not fun to to just go and change filters. It's not fun to do those things, but it's necessary. You see, every single week when you arrive back on this campus, you need to be mindful that the world, the flesh, and the devil is trying to deform your faith and deconstruct your faith in such a way that relationships in this very church would be hindered. And so you need to be maintaining these relationships and maintaining this unity for the glory of God. Listen to Ephesians 6.14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, in 
chapter 6 of this very letter, Paul says that the pastor teacher is given to the church so that the church could be mature, so that the church could avoid the deceitful schemes. The word schemes here, methodia in the Greek is where we derive the English word method from. And so it is that the devil has all sorts of methods to stop the church's vision, to hinder a person's prayer life, to to prevent the unity of the church. Schemes of division, division between the people and the leadership, division between the body itself. Satan's schemes are real. And Satan blinds spiritual eyes. He hinders God's children, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And by the way, Satan is a real being, not just a force. Satan influences the whole world, according to 1 John 5. Satan is called the anointed cherub. He's referenced as the prince of the world or the prince of the power of the air. Satan is referred to as as the prince of demons in Luke 11. Satan is called Satan, meaning adversary, 52 times in the Bible. Satan is called the devil, meaning slanderer. He is called the old serpent, the great dragon, the roaring lion who's seeking someone to devour. He's called the evil one. He is called the destroyer. He is called the tempter. He's called the accuser of the brethren. That's why if you just read down to verse 27 of Ephesians chapter 4, you will see that Paul is encouraging the church to give no opportunity to the devil, no opportunity to the schemes of the devil to be unified. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, at the end of this chapter, this entire chapter, the focus is unity. Notice what it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All throughout the Bible, we find passages that point to the reality that we should be unified, and in this specific chapter, this is the urge, this is what Paul is pressing upon this church, to be a unified body, to be a unified body. Now, if you give your attention to the Scriptures, all throughout the New Testament, you see emphasis on the one another passages. In fact, if you want to do a fascinating Bible study, those of you that like to just trace words and do word studies, then you just do a word study on the one another passages all in the New Testament. I'll I'll mention just a, a handful. Be at peace with one another, Mark chapter 9. Don't grumble among one another, John 6. Be of the same mind with one another, Romans 12 and Romans 15. Accept one another, Romans 15. We are to wait for one another before beginning the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. We are not to bite and devour and consume one another, according to Galatians 5. We're not to envy one another, according to Galatians 5. We're to be gentle and to tolerate one another, here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. We're to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We're to bear with one another and to forgive one another, according to Colossians 3. We're to seek good for one another and to refuse to repay evil to one another, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're to resist complaining against one another, James chapter 4. And we're to confess sin to one another, James chapter 5. We're to give preference to one another, Romans 12. We're to regard one another as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2. We're to serve one another, Galatians 5. We are to engage in serving and caring for one another, refusing to be haughty, but yet being of the same mind with one another. And we see this in Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 5. We are to be subject to one another. If you continue to read the one another passages, you will see a commitment to Loving one another. Love one another. John chapter 13, John 15, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We see it in 1 Peter 1. We see 1 John 3, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. We are to love one another, for love is from God. 
And the way that we exemplify the fact that God has loved us is that we actually love one another. We are to be devoted to one another with brotherly love, Romans chapter 12. We're not to judge one another. We're not to, to engage in, in speaking evil to one another, but instead we're to speak truth to one another, Ephesians 4. Comfort one another. Encourage and build one another up. <clears throat> Stir up one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and to pray for one another, James chapter 5. Again, you can see all of these one another passages. If you search out the New Testament, you will see the driving emphasis is that God's will for your life is that you and I are to be a part of a local church and that we are to be a together people, unified together, serving one another, loving one another. The Christian is not called to create unity, but to cultivate this unity. The Christian is not called to manufacture unity, but to maintain it. That's the call of the Christian. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, not to be in fellowship with those who are born again is to be guilty of schism, which is sinful, end quote. The goal of the church is that we are to see one another as the family of faith, the family of God. And that's the that's the responsibility of maintaining this unity. Maintaining this unity is extremely important. It's vital to the health of the church. If you allow discord and division to enter the church, it's sinful. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, quote, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation, end quote. If you go back to the book of Acts, you will see that the early church was growing by leaps and bounds. 120 in the upper room, Peter preaches one sermon, 3,000 or more are added to the church, and then soon thereafter he, he preaches a sermon in Solomon's portico, and there's 5,000 men plus women and children. Pretty soon, within a number of months, you have the church going from just a handful to upwards of 20 or more thousand people. And so as a result, there was division and there was, there was some issues that needed to be dealt with. And so you see in Acts chapter number 6, you see that there are men who were to be called for the purpose of serving the church to bring about what? To bring about unity rather than division. And that is exactly the role of a deacon, by the way, is not to be someone who gossips and is known as a gossiper or a slanderer or someone who divides different factions of the church. No, a deacon is someone who is actively engaging and bringing about the unity of the local church. We see this as our goal. Our goal, your goal, your goal here at this church is to maintain this unity for the glory of God. But what foundation does this stand on? In verses 4 through 6, we see that Paul gives us the doctrine of unity. Sometimes when I'm traveling from city to city, you can drive across the landscape and you can see church signs and the names of certain churches. It seems as if they're, they're speaking to another church down the road like, Unity Baptist or Concord Baptist, as if they're saying, well, Disunity Baptist is about three miles that direction, but we're Unity Baptist. And it's not always that this, the, the, the situation. It's not always some nasty split that results in a church being called Unity Baptist or Unity Bible Church, if you will. But the idea is that names matter. And when you read the name of a church, like, for the life of me, honestly, I can't fathom why anyone would want to name their church Corinth Baptist. I just can't. I mean, I read, that, I read those letters, and I look, and I, I'm like, no, you know, it's like, well, what, what names do we propose that we, you know, call this church? And then, you know, several people raise their hand, and they're all horrible. And then someone says, how about we just offer up a biblical choice, and it's Corinth. Well, that sounds great. We'll just call ourselves Corinth Baptist. Not a good thing. 
That church was divided and sinful, all sorts of horrific things happening there. But in this text, what we see in verses 4 through 6 is we see the doctrine of unity, the foundation of unity that's given. And we see this in two ways. First of all, there are groups of three, triads. We see two of those. In verse 4, you see one. In verse 5, you see one. If you look at verse 4, you see body, spirit, and hope all linked together. And then you see in verse 5, Lord, faith, and baptism all linked together. And then you see in verses 4 through 6, another way that Paul emphasizes unity and the doctrine of unity is by putting on display the doctrine of the Trinity. In verses 4 through 6, he starts off with a reference to the Spirit, and then he eventually references the Lord, and then he comes finally to the very end, and he references God the Father. And so the idea is, is that if the Trinity is unified, so should God's church be unified. That's the idea that he's driving at here. So let's give attention to these various different aspects to point us to how we are to be unified together because obviously football doesn't work. Like when I gave you the test a moment ago, I heard laughing in the room. So obviously we don't come together under the banner of a specific college football team. We don't come together under the banner of a certain baseball team or professional team. We don't come together under the banner of politics. We come together rather because of the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice here in the text in verse 4 the, the reference to the body. There is one body, one body. Now, this metaphor of body, Paul likes to use. He uses it in his letter to the church at Corinth. He uses it here. He uses it in other places. But when he uses the metaphor of the body, the idea is that the body is complex. Even in a primitive setting, the, the knowledge base of the individuals that he would have been writing to, although they did not have the, the technology that we enjoy today to be able to study the human anatomy as we can, they were quite aware of the fact that the body was unique and complex and made up of many different parts. And all of these parts of one body work together for the purpose of unity. Consider the human body. The circulatory system is to move blood and nutrients and oxygen around the body. The digestive system consists of a series of connected organs that together allow the body to break down and absorb food and nutrients. The endocrine system consists of eight major glands that secrete hormones into the blood that travel throughout different tissues and regulate various different bodily functions. Consider the immune system. It's the body's defense against bacteria and pathogens and viruses. Consider the lymphatic system, which includes the lymph nodes and the lymph ducts and the lymph vessels and also plays a role in the body's defenses and defense mechanisms. Consider the nervous system, which controls both voluntary actions and involuntary actions, like voluntary action of me moving my arm and then involuntary action of you breathing every few seconds. The body's muscular system consists of about 650 muscles that aid the movement of blood flow and bodily movements. The reproductive system, and then of course you can see the skeletal system of 206 bones that are connected by tendons and ligaments and cartilage. The respiratory system and the urinary system and so on and so forth. And then of course you see the body's skin which is the largest organ of our body, protects us from the outside world. It's our first defense against all sorts of different toxins. The human body contains 100 trillion cells. The average adult takes 20,000 breaths a day. Each day, the kidneys process about 200 quarts or 50 gallons of blood to filter out about two different quarts of waste and water. Adults excrete about a quarter and a half 
of urine each day. The human brain contains about 100 billion nerve cells. And then, of course, water makes up more than 50% of the average adult's body weight. When you think about the human anatomy, when you think about the body, when you think about how the body functions, all of these various different systems and body parts working together in unison to bring you to the seat where you are this evening, to keep you alive right now through the preaching of the Word that will take you home and then it will give you signals to tell you that you're tired and that you need rest and you'll go to sleep and then you'll wake up in the morning and you'll go to work and you'll go to various places and you will function and you will do so without the thought that there are various different parts of this amazing thing that we call a body that's working together. And yet, the metaphor is so clear. The church is made up of many different body parts. And all of these body parts matter. Not just the ones that are on this platform, not just the ones that have some role, not just the ones that have a specific office within this church, but this entire church matters. Every last one of you in this room matters to God. And you should matter to this church. So much so that if you just disappear, that it shouldn't be that you just disappear, that it's, it's known that you're not here. Because it would be a strange thing if we woke up tomorrow morning and our leg, our right leg just said, you know what? Nope. Not doing it. Now you could hobble along and you could make it. But it would be difficult. It would provide some challenges for you. Some of you are smiling at me, so apparently your knee's hurting or your leg or something, and so you know what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see we who are many are one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, listen to what Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, then he says this, so it is with Christ. In fact, in this passage here from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 down to verse 20, 14 times he references the body metaphor, driving home this reality that in the church, that the church has many different body parts, but all of those body parts matter. In fact, when you think about what an autoimmune disease is, and some of you in this room have an autoimmune disease or a disease like say type 1 diabetes, which is related to autoimmune disease, where the body actually, for some reason, and oftentimes it's unknown, the cause itself, the underlying cause might be unknown, but causes one part of the body to actually attack another part of the body. So in the case of diabetes, the, you start having massive blood sugar, you start drinking, you have an insatiable desire for water, you can't hardly go, uh, you know, five steps without, you know, a water bottle in your hand and then you're losing weight and you go to the doctor and your blood sugar is like 712 and then the doctor tells you, that you have diabetes. And then you start learning, get an education on that, and you figure out what that is, and that means that your pancreas no longer excretes, it no longer dispenses insulin, which is necessary to regulate your blood sugar. And so one part of the body is attacking another part of the body, and so it's damaging. Consider that same reality when it comes to the church. When one part of the church is attacking another part of the church, it's disastrous. The Puritan John Flavel, commenting on the importance of unity, he said the following, quote, To see an Egyptian smiting an Israelite is no strange sight, but to see one Israelite quarreling with another is most unnatural and uncomely. The nearer the relation, the stronger the affection, end quote. So in other words, the whole world should see that church splits and, and church fractures and church division, they should see that as something that's very odd. Well, how did that church happen? Was it, was it because of a church that's growing and healthy, planting another church? No, no, no. It was, it was because a group of people in that church got mad about something and they packed up their bags and they went down the road and they started another church. 
the world should look at that and, and, and the world might say, well, I mean, I get it. But the church should look at that and say, that's, that's not good. That's not good. We are to be the body of Christ. We are to be together, coming together as the body. And so sometimes you'll, you'll hear people talking about, well, you know, it sure was fun hanging out this weekend with my ball team family. You'll hear people talking about their work family. You'll hear people talking about their football family or their softball family or their soccer family in the fall. And where have you been all weekend? Well, I've been out with my, with my ball family. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with finding relationships and meaningful relationships around athletics. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when was the last time you put greater emphasis on your church family? Your church family. You see, one of the things I want to encourage you as I've been here now for one full Lord's Day, so I don't know you very well, but what I will say is that you seem to be a church that is healthy and strong and growing, and you seem to be a church that's warm and receptive to the preaching of God's Word, and that's a good thing. But what I will tell you is that the longer that you have, and as long as you have two services, you're going to have to be fiercely committed to maintaining unity. Or otherwise, if they don't come back, whatever service you were in this morning, if the people that were in the opposite service don't come back in the evening on a perpetual basis, you don't even know who they are. And so you're going to have to strive, you're going to have to work, you're going to have to be diligent to make sure that this church is a unified church, not, not a bunch of satellite churches operating on one campus. And you see that happens oftentimes. It's a lot of people in the music ministry see that as their church, and then the youth see, well, this is my church over here, and, and it's somehow detached from the church as a whole. When the church should see the church as one body, not a multiplicity of, of different bodies, but a, a multiplicity of different members who make up one body. That's, that's the point that's being driven home here. And so it is that we should be fiercely committed to this calling. But notice the doctrine also, he, he mentions not only one body, but he also mentions one spirit. We have the same spirit living and indwelling inside of us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet we have been brought together by the Spirit of God, making application through the gospel of God, all for the glory of God, driving us to the Son of God, because we have been elected by God the Father. You see, the Spirit of God has brought us out of darkness, called us, convicted us, has drawn us out of the world into the church. And so this one spirit matters. And then you see a reference in verse 4 to one hope. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope. Notice the accent of one, one, one. One hope of your calling. You see, we have this one genuine hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is through this one Savior who has redeemed us that we look to, we cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is one hope. And this one hope calls us together and brings us to this, this reality. In verse 5, he, he goes further and he mentions one Lord. One Lord. This is the second of those two groupings, if you will, those three groups. And now it's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And when he mentions here one Lord, he's, he's pointing us to Jesus. In other words, the same Jesus who died for you is the same Jesus who died for you. And the same Jesus who died for you is the same Jesus who died for you. And the same Jesus who died for you is the same Jesus who died for you. And that's why when you come together at the Lord's table for worship as a church, 
we are mindful of that reality. It is the gospel made visible before us. One Lord. One Lord. You see, it is Christ who brings us together. This is why the whole social justice thing doesn't make sense for the church. Now, the the culture can chop all they want to and talk about social justice until the cows come home, but I want to tell you that it makes no sense at all for the church of the living God to talk about or to embrace social justice to bring about unity. In fact, it does the opposite. Social justice divides the church. The church of the of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of God does not need critical race theory or intersectionality to bring about unity. No, we have one Lord who has brought us together. We are not called out of darkness by critical race theory or intersectionality. We are called out of darkness by the Lord Jesus Christ himself who died for us, who bled for us, who suffered in our place, was placed in a borrowed tomb, resurrected on the third day. This Jesus is our hope. In verse number five, he also speaks of one faith. One faith. This is our reliance upon God through Christ. One faith. Not multiple different faiths, not different levels of faith, but one genuine faith. We are in the faith. You'll hear people talk like that. Are you in the faith? And so we have this one faith. And then he speaks about one baptism, and this is not a reference to water baptism in the sense of the ordinance of the church. It's a reference to being baptized by the Holy Spirit. At the very moment of our conversion, we were sealed with the spirit of promise. We see this in Ephesians chapter number 1. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We have been baptized by the Spirit of God. So it's not Texas or Texas A&M. It's not Alabama or Auburn. It's not Georgia or Alabama. It's not Braves or Yankees or Falcons or Saints. It's not Ford or Chevy. It is We are brought together by one spirit, in one faith, in one baptism, one baptism of the spirit of God. And then, of course, in verse number six, he concludes by saying, one God and Father of all. This is the doctrine of unity, and this is why it is, and this is how it is, by the way. This is how it's possible for a group of sinners who would, for no other reason, choose to love one another, but we are called out of darkness into the light of Christ, into the family of God, and instead we embrace one another and we love one another. And there's a bond here that goes deeper than even blood relationships because of the work of Jesus Christ. You see here, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, This is a statement of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. You see, when he he references here the calling and he references those who have been called several different times in this passage, it is God who called us. It is God who calls an individual to himself. We don't just wake up one day and determine on our own accord that we're going to just become a Christian It doesn't work that way. We have been called by God and we have been assembled by God. And all of this in the life of the local church for God's glory. Consider what Thomas Watson said. There is but one God and they that serve him should be one. There is nothing that would render the true religion more lovely or make more proselytes to it than to see the professors of it tied together with the heartstrings of love. Let me conclude our time in the Word this evening by asking a series of questions. First, I would ask you, are you disconnected from your local church in the sense of genuine relationships, meaningful relationships, real Christian koinonia? And by the way, koinonia is something that's far more than just a Christian homeschool co-op. Real genuine 
genuine friendships that are maintained on the basis of the doctrine that's been put on display in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Do you know of any disunity within the church? When you observe the Lord's table, does it even cross your mind at all on Saturday night that what we're going to do tomorrow when I come into that building and that table is set should cause me to give pause, to ask that that relationship that's been broken and that's been severed for so long is dishonoring to God. And before I dare draw near to God and worship at the Lord's table, something must be done to restore it. Does that even cross your mind? Do you think that way? How much do you pray for your deacons who serve you and the elders who lead you? How much time do you spend? Do you have pastor roast for lunch at your table to teach your children to complain and to be complainers about the staff or the, the elders who serve? Or do you drive the importance of unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How much time do you spend complaining and spreading discord in private? Well, you know, we just need to pray for so-and-so. Have you thought about your text message conversations that you have or those emails that you send? How valuable are the relationships that are in this room to you? Are you willing to fight for it? Or perhaps some of you or maybe some of the people who aren't with us this evening that were here this morning are on the very verge of just packing up their bags and going someplace else. Has that ever happened? Well, certainly it does. But what are you going to do about it? What phone call should you make this evening? What visit should you make this week? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the life of the local church matters because God's church matters to God and it should matter to us as well. Psalm 133 verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And this evening if you're in this room and you have no thought of unity because you're not a Christian, I would urge you this evening, if you know without any shadow of any doubt that you're a lost individual under the wrath of God, guilty before God, but you want to be saved, I would urge you this evening to cast yourself upon the mercy of God. See that God is good and he is gracious and find your hope in Jesus Christ alone and any and all who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved.